The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Exodus, chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And that shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute as it is appointed to time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of a man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them, by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And when they moved on from Sakoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them along in the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not, did not depart from before the people. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you're with us, if you'd open up your Bibles here to Exodus chapter 13, Um, that's where we're going to be at this morning. We're going to kind of knock out this whole chapter, um, which is not an easy feat. Uh, I'm struggling to do that. I'm struggling um, to make my way through a chapter and uh, and not get kind of zero in on a few verses and 
and really cause us to, to slow down. So um, if you're just joining us, we are now about 13 weeks or so into studying this book of Exodus, and we're working verse by verse through its entirety. Uh, almost everyone in our culture has heard the story of the Exodus. There have been many movies made about it. Uh, but like all movies that are based on a book, they leave many things out. You rarely hear anyone say, I think the movie was better than the book. Uh, this is definitely the case in Exodus. There's no way that a movie can capture the details that are described for us here. A movie can tell a story. It can capture our imaginations, but it can't get down into the nitty-gritty details like we're going to try to do today. So it's not surprising if you, you're familiar with the big pieces of Exodus, but as we're reading stuff, you're like, what? I never knew that, right? Listen, if your theological education came from the Prince of Egypt, uh, it's going to be lacking, okay? It's going to be lacking. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to try to get down into some of that. And, and we know that, you know, Timothy, First Timothy tells us that all Scripture is profitable. All Scripture is good for training, for reproof, for, dis- for training us in godliness. Even, uh, even a Scripture that talks about breaking a donkey's neck, right? I'm sure we read that and we're like, this is so applicable to me in my life. On Thanksgiving weekend, let's talk about breaking an ass's neck. I just really wanted to say that, so I've been waiting to say that. So just to catch us up to speed, God has just rescued his people from the oppressive slavery of Egypt. He has sent a succession of plagues to dismantle and decapitate all the gods of Egypt, proving his superiority and his sovereignty. And yet the king of Egypt would not repent, nor would he relent, And so God visited Egypt himself. God came down there. God came as a destroyer, the scripture says. He came bringing his judgment upon every house in Egypt for their sins because they had rebelled from God, because they had sinned against God, and he's the creator and the sovereign ruler of all things. They had committed cosmic treason. He came down to settle accounts, so to speak. Every firstborn, man or beast, would die at midnight the night God came to town. But God, in his mercy and compassion, gave his people a shelter from his wrath. And it was not in their own goodness. It was not in their own faith, necessarily. It wasn't in their own uh, morality. The shelter was not, I'm going to kill the bad guys and I'm going to give grace to the good guys. The shelter was under the shed blood of a lamb. If they killed a lamb and they placed its blood on the doorposts and the lintels of their house, God would come and see the blood and would pass over them. He would allow the life of the lamb to take the place of their firstborn. That the wrath of God would come upon the lamb instead of their sons and their sons would be spared. This final plague happened exactly how God said it would happen. On that night, none of the Egyptians put any blood. Well, we don't, we don't know. The Egyptians that did not put any blood on their doorposts, that the wrath of God entered and killed their sons, including Pharaoh. And all the Israelites who put the blood and any other slave or any other person who put the blood on the doorpost was delivered from that sentence of death. And 
the lamb died in the place of their sons. And this happened so swift. This final plague was so demoralizing and devastating that all of Egypt, that same night when it happened, they, the scripture says, thrust Israel out of Egypt. God had saved his people immediately in one night and delivered them. And now they were walking out of Egypt as free people for the first time in their lives in 430 years. So probably four or five generations of Israelites were raised in slavery. They knew nothing but slavery. And now because of the act of God in one night, they walk out free. And look at verse four in chapter 13. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. Abib is a collective noun that means ears of grain. So more loosely, it means springtime. It's the same month, which is somewhere in our calendar, March and April, that is later in the Old Testament called Nisan. So this is happening here in the spring, all right? Now this is why we celebrate the Lord's resurrection, Easter, it's resurrection day, in the springtime. All right, it culminated with these, we got these festivals here and that's when the Lord's uh, crucifixion and resurrection happened. And so it happens in the springtime. Now look at verse five. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. So first off, first off it's happening in the springtime. Second, we see here, that they are, they're going to this promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey, all right? It means flowing with abundance and prosperity and God's goodness and God's going to meet them there. But what we notice right away is that they're going from a foreign land into another foreign land. They were immigrants in Egypt, and now they're going to be sojourners in another land that is currently hostile to them. It's hostile to them. It's hostile to their way of life. They're going to a land possessed by others that are actually antagonistic towards their faith and antagonistic towards their God. The Israelites were not walking into a land that was a clean blank slate, free from any cultural pressures and false gods. No, they were going into a land that was full of false religion, that sacrificed their children to the gods. They were going to a land that was oppressive to the minority, oppressive to those who were impoverished. They were going into a deeply unjust um, society. They were going into an area that was very antagonistic to them. And so they couldn't just move in and start living as God's people. They would be killed and annihilated. They were heading into a land that was already populated and was, in a lot of ways, hostile to God and their way of life. It would be like us trying to move into Iraq or Afghanistan and just live like we do here, right? Or maybe a less, you know, severe example would be like a small town American parents sending their children off to a large liberal university. What do we have? What kind of thoughts do we have when we do that? We think, what kind of effect will this new environment have on them and have on their faith? Will they keep their faith? There's books out 
on how to stay Christian in college. Why? Because we see that the, the, the higher education oftentimes is antagonistic towards our faith. What kind of effect will this new environment have on them? Will they, and then in this context, will they abandon the God who has rescued them out of Egypt because of the surrounding cultural pressures? When there's no more visible slave masters, will they still cry out to the God who saved them? Right? When our kids get free from mom and dad and free from maybe going to church every week or free from going to missional community or free from some of the uh, ways that we try to shape them and we try to steer them, what's going to happen to our kids when they're free of that and they're in an environment that's actually, a lot of the times, hostile to the Christian faith? So the question is, how is God going to prepare his people to live in a hostile land, a foreign land, and to keep the faith in this foreign land? And the question for us is, how are we going to prepare ourselves to live in a hostile environment? We should be asking the same question for us and for our kids as our culture continues to become more and more hostile to Orthodox Christianity and the way that we see the world the way that, honestly, the West has seen the world for thousands of years. How do we train ourselves and prepare our children to live in a world that considers our God and our faith and our morality and our worldview as increasingly unwelcome in society? From our text this morning, um, I see two major things that God gave his people to shape them and form them. Because the answer is not, uh, oh, oh, that looks dangerous. Don't go. The, the, the answer is not, you know what? Let's just move to the west. Let's just move to the west suburbs of Egypt and just hunker down. And we'll start our own little community here and we'll just hunker down in Egypt. We don't have to go out there. We'll just hunker down here and we'll, we'll, we'll make a little safe enclave and, and we'll, be Christ, we'll be our own little God's people right here. That, that's not the answer. He, he doesn't change his mind. No, you're going, and you're going to go to this land that's possessed by these other nations, and that's going to be your land. But when you get there, how are you going to stay connected to the roots of your theology, to the roots of who you are as people? How are you going to stay rooted in this Exodus story? That's the answer. And I see two things, and I'm going to give them to you right away, then we'll unpack it. One, God issues some deep and I'm going to use the word of a philosopher, uh, Jamie Smith here. He calls these things thick practices, okay? These deep, thick practices that shape our hearts through our bodies, through things that we do. It shapes our hearts and our minds, and it's meant specifically for the Israelites to shape their hearts and minds around this great act of deliverance, this Exodus story. They're meant to be Exodus people all their life. They're meant to be people that are deeply shaped by this act of redemption, this act of the Exodus. Their whole life, everything they do in their life is meant to be shaped by this Exodus account. And then secondly, and these are really, for us, the language we're going to use, these are nothing less than gospel liturgies. Liturgies, liturgy means work of the people. This morning, this gathering is a, has a liturgical shape to it. We have a call to worship. 
We confess our sins. We sing to God. We're absolved of our sins. It has a shape. We profess our faith. We sit under the reading of God's word. It's meant not just to, to, it's meant through our actions, through our doing, to engage our hearts and our minds and our wills and shape us in the doing. Okay, that's what a liturgy does. It shapes us in the doing. All of us have liturgies. Many of you probably just practiced your thickest liturgies that you grew up with this last week, right? Um, so for me, growing up, we always celebrate Thanksgiving. This has been a wacky Thanksgiving for us. My brother was traveling from Denver, and so we had to push Thanksgiving back to Friday. And so Thursday, we just sat around and didn't know what to do with ourselves, right? And one of the things that we do on Thanksgiving, we always, we, we have turkey, we have phenomenal food, we sit around and, and we eat food and we, you know, we just talk about family stuff. We do these things. But the last Thanksgiving we had, my uh, nephew came in and he said, Nini, why, why is there no ham? I, I wanted ham. And, and we've never had ham. We have ham on Christmas and we have ham on Easter and we have ham on, and ham is wonderful. Uh, and and I, I told my mom, the reason we don't have ham on Easter is because who would eat this bird if you have ham available? Like, ham clearly trumps the bird anytime. And so we just have this cultural, we just have this liturgy of our family. We always eat turkey. We always do these things, you know, and, and, and this is just part of our culture, part of how we were raised, part of how we were, we were grown up. And this week, we, this week we kind of broke it. We, my mom said just because my nephew wanted it, we had ham and we had turkey. And I didn't touch a piece of that turkey. I, I broke that liturgy. I broke it. But what, what is it? What is your liturgy? You go back to grandma's house. You go back to mom's house. You know, we all have these weird, my wife, when I first kind of got, you know, brought into their family, they kind of have these, I think it's like a Swedish background. And so for Christmas Eve one time, we sat down to this Swedish dinner. And I'll tell you, it was the worst thing I've ever been a part of. <laughs> all right. It was. All kind of funky cheeses. Looked like it had pieces of bark stuffed in them. I didn't know what was going on. But it's some liturgy. It's some liturgy. And, and the, the, her family, the kids, this is the greatest thing ever. And I'm eating. And I'm just like, oh, my goodness. Right? I'm shaped by a different liturgy. I have different rhythms and, and, and different, um, you know, pra cultural practices, different thick practices. But these liturgies that we all have, they shape us. I didn't even know it. Last year, when I was putting up Christmas lights in our house, um, I turned my, I, I had the kids out helping me, so I turned my truck on, and I turned it on Mix 96, you know, and playing Christmas music, and, and my daughter, our kids, we're such a, like, liturgical animals. Early this week, my, my kids are getting all excited, getting ready for Thanksgiving, and getting, you know, to get past Thanksgiving so they can get on to Christmas, and, and my daughter's like, Dad, are you going to put up Christmas lights and play Christmas music from your truck? And I was like, well, yes, I guess I am going to do that. And what happened, see, I kind of started a tradition last year. And what happens with liturgies is you form them and then they form you. And so I started this new, I didn't even know I was doing it. I'm playing Christmas music while I'm putting up Christmas lights from my truck. And my daughter knew this is what dad does. This is what we always do. And we're going to do this forever. We're going to be that kind of people, right? Like that's what we, that's the kind of people we are. And so then it was like, yes, of course, that's what I'm going to do. So we put up Christmas lights and played Christmas music from our, and we got a new liturgy, a new family liturgy. Well, God is giving his people these liturgies, these 
thick practices that are meant to shape them into a certain type of people forever, okay? And so they're very important. And then the second thing we're going to see is the liturgy is important and the practice is important, but if you don't have an apologetic response to the practice, now apologetic, that's a reasoned response. That's why are we doing what we're doing? That a person go, when my daughter's 15 and goes, dad, why do you always play music from your truck when you put up Christmas lights? I can tell you the reason I do that, honey, is because you made me when you were six years old, right? There's a reason for this madness that I'm doing. And the, 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 the reality is that our, cult, our, our, our rhythms and our liturgies and our practices, they need to have some theologically rich and historic justifications for why we do what we do to answer our children's great questions and also to answer the questions of the culture around us. So you're going to see these two things. You're going to see these thick practices and you're going to see an apologetic response, answers to the questions of the either surrounding society or their own children. So we're going to jump in that. Uh, we've already studied one of these liturgies in detail, and that was the Passover. We've spent basically two weeks talking about the Passover, um, that every spring they were to celebrate the Passover meal to remember their salvation from Egypt and to watch for God to do it again. But today we see two more liturgies that God gives to his people to shape them into a certain type of people to prepare them to live as his certain type of people in a hostile land. All right, God's people in a foreign land. We're going to shape, these are going to shape you into that type of person. The first one here is the feast of unleavened bread, okay? Um, You see this in verses 3. Let's just go to verses 3 to 10. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt. So there is, these liturgies are connected to an event. It's something they need to remember, Out of the house of slavery, by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. Look, no leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, Jebusites, which you swore to the fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Now look, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And then on the seventh day, there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you. And no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. Okay? So the Passover meal kicked off a seven-day celebration where they ate nothing, but where they ate no, they ate unleavened bread. They ate no leavened bread to commemorate and remember that God saved them. Now, what's the deal with unleavened bread? Remember, Unleavened bread, God saved them so fast from the Egyptians that that night they didn't even have time for the yeast to work its way into their dough of their bread. And so it was so immediate and so quick that they, you know, they put, they, they put that bread in the oven. It didn't rise because there was no, the yeast didn't have time to work its way through the dough. So he wants them to remember how fast God delivered them. And, so, and then on the last day of the week, they would have a feast to the Lord. So not only were they to celebrate the Passover every year, but they were also to celebrate this week-long festival where they ate unleavened bread, and at the end, it would culminate in a great feast to the Lord. Okay, So you see how this is 
a, a yearly, think about, I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to make, you know, one-to-one comparisons here, but we have like Mardi Gras, it's this week-long celebration, right? We have all, we have these things. Think about that. It's not just a day, but it's something, Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, well, seven-day week, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We've got this long kind of liturgical, every year, you would sit down with your family and you would celebrate the Passover and then you would eat unleavened bread for a week and the kids would be like, why are we eating this for a week? Right? And then we're going to see why in a minute. But that's not all. There's one more liturgy or thick practice that God's give, God gives them. Look at verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn." Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast, is mine. Now jump down to verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, he shall give it to you. You shall set apart to the Lord, set apart. Okay, so I'm going to say this word consecration and set apart. All right, it's just talking about the same thing. Keep moving. All that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. And every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Okay, now this is called the consecration of the firstborn. God is issuing another liturgy or ritual here that is meant to remind his people about the night of the Passover and their debt to him as their savior. As he saved their firstborn sons and beasts through the death of a lamb, he now, in a sense, is calling into that, calling in that debt, he's saying, I bought your sons. Your sons are mine. You remember when I saved them? When I was coming to town and they, their death was certain, I saved them. I purchased them. They're mine. I own them. Right? And then we have three words to kind of help us understand what's going on. We have this word consecrate. We have this word set apart. And then in verse 15, For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, but the firstborn of man and and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Okay, here's the principle. Every firstborn male animal, and every firstborn child belonged to God. They were his and meant to be given by given back to God. Now, this is similar to the, think about, God wasn't just interested in the firstborn sons. The firstborn sons were the representatives of the whole family. Think about in the football field, you send your captains out to the center of the field to choose head or tail, right? The captains represent the whole team. The sons represent, honestly, the debt that the whole family owes to God, that God has redeemed them, God has rescued them, and they owe their allegiance and they owe their life to him. And so this is what God says. And not just that, they're animals. So what is up with 
This animal you should sacrifice to the Lord. This animal you should redeem. Well, that's a word that we need to look at. We use the word redemption. We use the word redeemer. We use the word redeem a lot around here and kind of in our society. But this is the first instance the word redeem is ever used in the scriptures. Okay? So we might kind of be familiar with it, but we need to unpack it and take a look at it. The word redeem means to buy back something. Okay? It's, sometimes it's translated as ransom. You pay a ransom to get someone back. Now, it's, ransom is a better illustration in the New Testament. It's not a perfect uh, way to use the word here, so we use this word redeem. To pay a debt and to transfer ownership. So this new liturgy that they would practice every springtime when all of their animals would give birth. So think about this. Every year their animals would give birth and they would practice this consecration of the firstborn. If it's a firstborn lamb, it would be sacrificed to the Lord to connect them back to the lamb that was sacrificed in the Passover. If it was a donkey, two things could happen. Now, what's the difference here? Leviticus is going to teach us, we're not going to Leviticus yet, okay? But if we ever do study the book of Leviticus, it gives some clarification of what's going on here. God has some animals that are clean ritually and some animals that are unclean. Basically, if it's edible, if it's not just edible, but if it should be eaten, it's a clean animal. So you're talking about lamb, you're talking about ox, you're talking about uh, goat, things like that. Those things can be eaten. Those things are clean animals. But then if you're talking about a donkey, it's not, he's like, don't eat a donkey, right? Every donkey said, thank you, right? Don't eat the donkey. But, so there's these clean animals and there's unclean animals. But here's the deal. If you have a donkey and, and it gives birth, you still owe the debt, but you don't sacrifice it to the Lord. You have two options when it comes to an unclean animal. You can break its neck and kill it. Or you can redeem it. You can buy it back from God. You can, and how, does he, how do you buy it back? He tells us right there. You take a lamb and kill the lamb in its place. That's how you buy back this firstborn donkey from the Lord. And so if you say, you know what? I need this animal. There's a beast of burden. This can help me on the farm. I'm going to need this when it grows up. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to kill a lamb in its place and redeem this animal. Now, think about this practice. It's violent practice. It's a violent practice. Like, I don't recommend you doing this, right? Shih Tzu had some babies. Well, son, Old Testament, right? No, no, no. Right? Well, what's going on here? Well, it's meant to, think of every springtime, all these animals are giving birth, and dad says, come on, son, let's go out to the, let's go out to the barn. And he's either killing an animal or he's, well, he's killing an animal because he's either killing a lamb to take his place or he's killing the animal. And this was meant to reach down in their life and connect them in the moment, no matter if they're a thousand years in the future or 500 years in the future, connect them back to the, the violent night in Egypt where God violently but graciously rescued them from their cruel oppressors in Egypt. Remember, Egypt had been killing their firstborn sons. Egypt had been throwing them in the river and committing genocide upon, and God said, no, you killed my firstborn sons, I'll take your firstborn son. 
And this practice, this ritual is meant to connect them back to the night of their salvation where God rescued them and redeemed them. And we know, interestingly enough, that this practice continued for at least 1,500 years. Oh, by the way, he says specifically, and your firstborn sons you shall redeem. Which teaches us two things. Number one, it's not, God's not for, never has been for human sacrifice, sacrificing your children to other gods. The pagan nations surrounding them were, God has never been that. And, and, but we, so we see that he, he says, don't kill your firstborn sons, uh, redeem them. But what's interesting is the animals that needed to be redeemed were the unclean animals. And so God classifies human beings, God classifies us as unclean. Why? Because we are sinful. Because we've rebelled from him. Because we've walked away and pushed away from him. And so, first off, we see ourselves as unclean. And this work of redemption, now we do, he doesn't say specifically, how do you redeem a son? But if we jump 15, and there is in the book of Leviticus, it does talk about how you redeem a son. But if we jump 1,500 years in the future and we look um, to Luke chapter 2, I want us to go there. Go to, flip your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Okay, we're just, we're literally, we're taking a time machine here. We're moving forward 1,500 years. We're at, Chapter 2, verse 22. Jesus has just been born. And he's born to, he's the son of God, but he's born to Mary and Joseph, and they're Jewish. And look what they do in verse 22. And when the time came from their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that's Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. This act of consecration, this act of setting apart your firstborns to the Lord, they are still doing 1,500 years later. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. This is a direct quote from Exodus chapter 13. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, and this is in Deuteronomy, for, for poor people, for people who could not afford a lamb or could not afford the shekels of silver, they would give a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so that's exactly what they do. They bring Jesus to the temple and they pay, they redeem him. Interesting. They redeem him with the price of two young pigeons because they are poor. They brought him to the temple and they paid this ransom price. They paid this redemption price for Jesus. Now, did Jesus need to be redeemed? Absolutely not. Just like did Jesus need to be baptized by John later on? Absolutely not. But Jesus did it to fulfill all the law's commands, all the laws of Moses, right? And his parents did it to fulfill the law of Moses. Now, what's going on? Okay, so we have Passover. We have the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the week, week preparation. We have this consecration ceremony for your firstborns. Every single time you give birth, you, you kill an animal or you pay the shekels of silver to the priest to buy back your firstborn son or to buy back your animals. What, what's going on with these 
liturgies. Now, all of them were, like I've said, meant to shape, teach, and instruct them and their children on the three great questions of the human life. Who is God? What has he done? And who who am I? And all of them were centered in this Exodus event. He said, basically, you can learn everything you need to know about life, the big questions, from remembering and looking back what happened in this Exodus event. Now, this is important, okay? First off, liturgy is not enough. Thick practices is not enough. Ritual for ritual's sake is just empty religion. Liturgies lose much of their power when their meaning goes unnoticed or unexplained. For much of our population, think about this, if an alien came into our country and just embedded itself into our culture, what would it think Christmas is about? Presence, right? That, I mean, what else would it be about? You know, okay music that we just play over and over and over and over until Christmas Day, we're like, thank God it's over, right? Eating a lot of food, family celebrations, getting presents, getting deals, right? What, what happens? Now, listen, I, I'm not, I don't rail against Black Friday. I don't rail against any of those things. I don't, you know, yes, we have to guard against the consumeristic tendency, but all our culture does is want to hijack things that we have, the liturgies that we have, they want to hijack it for their own purposes, which is consumerism, right? Which is, we, they know that they make most of their money on Black Friday, right? And hey, we get good deals on toasters. So I, I you know, you waited in line for a toaster? Okay, right? I'm not, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna rail against that. But what's important is that we don't let our liturgies get hijacked in our family. We don't just go along and have certain practices and, and then are, it's like this. Let me say, bringing your child to church is not enough. Your kid goes, why do we go to church? Because we do. Because that's what we do. It's what Christians do. God tells us to do it. That's what we do. Right? There's, they don't understand the meaning behind it. They don't understand what's going on. Why do we practice the Lord's Supper the way we practice? I don't know, that's how we do. Why do we baptize? It's just what we do. Our children and even us and even our neighbors need to know the apologetical reasons behind it. Why are we doing it? What's the the purpose behind it? What's the theological meaning behind it? What's the historical significance of it? Why do we do what we do? You can't just go through the motions and expect your kids are gonna get it or your neighbors are going to get it. I I always love the, the analogy of like, People be a missionary. Just, just be a good Christian, and then people are going to come to you, and they're going to ask you about your life, and they're going to say, "Has anyone ever had that ever happen?" Hey, listen, I've just been noticing how your kids, you know, are so well behaved. I just want to know, what's your answer? Well, let me tell you, Jesus Christ. I've never heard of it. I've never heard of it. But I have heard of people asking you specifically about some weird things that you do that are liturgical pieces of your faith right? Why do you baptize your child? I've heard that many a time. And that opens up, if you can answer it intelligent, 
intelligently and theologically, then that brings up some interesting conversation. Now, what's, what we notice here is this is exactly, God gives these liturgies and he says, this is what they should do. Let's take a look at them. Verses 8, chapter 13, verses 8. Or chapter 13, verse 8. Oh, man, I'm in the wrong book. Flip back. There we go. You shall tell your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Why are we doing this? You shall tell your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord has done when we came out of Egypt. There is a theological, historical reason for the practice. Fathers, specifically I'm speaking to you, mothers as well. It is our job to root what we do to have a theological reason and a historical reality of what we do and why we do what we do. We don't just do it and expect our kids are going to somehow stay Christian or become Christians. We must root it to a theological reason. And so what these three big, remember I mentioned three big questions. Who is God? Well, he is the Lord. The Lord, that's the covenant God of Yahweh. Unlike all the other gods of the surrounding nation, he is the Lord who came down and rescued with a strong right hand. That's who he is. Your God is the God of all things, the Lord. It says it in verse 8. It also says it in verse 14. It says this, and when in time, well, let me, I'm just going to say, so first off, who is God? Yahweh. What has he done? Why do we celebrate this? Because God came down. He heard the cries of his people. He's a God of compassion. He came down and he delivered us and he brought a strong right hand against the gods of Egypt and he killed their firstborn man and beast and he rescued us quickly and powerfully without any help from us. And then, well, who am I? Every year they would practice this. That you are Yahweh's loved and forgiven son. We are God's people who've been rescued out of slavery. We have been freed by him to now worship him and remember him and live our lives for him. Douglas Stewart, a commentator on this said, they had been abused servants of a greater power. Now they were freed to be the happy servants of the greatest power. See, they get out, the potential to get out and to have some, you know, hey, you're in a land of flowing with milk and honey. You're going to have some, you could possibly have some prosperity in this land and you can forget that you were slaves. You for, can forget the work of redemption that went on in Egypt. And so God gives them these practices to keep them connected to this Exodus event. They were liturgies meant to remind them of the love of Yahweh and the length that he went to rescue them. They were meant to shape them into people who kept God and his work of redemption in the front of their minds. That's why it says, it shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlet between your eyes. This is another, say, another way of saying, it, it's meant to keep the Exodus event in the front of your mind, living like it's a, real, like it's a reality, a present reality in your life. Now, 
What does this say kind of about us? What does it say about God's people? Why does God go to this length? When you get there, practice these things every year. And they're kind of weird, right? These aren't normal practices, right? Why, why does God do something so kind of countercultural and so different, this Passover meal, this feast of unleavened bread, and then this consecration of the firstborn? I think the psalmist in Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14 says it best. Listen to this. It says this, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God knows our frame. He knows how frail we are. He knows how forgetful we are. He knows how easily we drift off course and lose sight of him and what he has done for us. And so he gives his people these liturgies to form them and remind them and keep their hearts directed at him. And if you follow in the future, every time Israel went off course, something with these feasts had already went off course. They stopped practicing them. We've got peace on all sides. There's nobody at war with us. What do we need this for? They stopped, and another one's coming. They stopped practicing the Sabbath, stopped resting. We've got seven days to work. We can get a whole lot more done in seven days. Let's just abandon this thing called Sabbath. What do we need to rest for? And, when you, and, and, and then the wheels fall off of Israel inner turmoil and sin and division and getting conquered by their enemies. And it's so funny how these simple liturgies meant to shape them. When they go bad, the nation goes bad. And now, look at verses 17 and 18. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. God knows our frame. God knows their frame. He's delivering these people out of Israel. He knows how weak they are. He knows how frail they are. And he knows if they go by the Philistines and see the Philistines waging war, they're going to be freaked out. They're going to be, they're so full of fear. They're going to run back to Egypt. And so I can't take the shortcut to the promised land I'm going to have to take the long way around because I love them and I care for them and I don't want them to have a heart attack when they see these Philistines, right? He knows they're fearful. And if they walk through this war zone, they're going to respond in fear and turn back to Egypt instead of pursuing the promised land in faith. So he takes them on this safer, scenic route. And this is so neat to me. He... The word Emmanuel that we sang, it means God with us. And we see Emmanuel in this text. Like God with them through a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. That God sees his people. He sees their frame. He he gives them these liturgies for the future to help them, to keep them on course, to remind them of his great act of redemption. And then he says, I'm going to put a flaming torch in front of you. Just follow it. 
I love it. He couldn't even give him a map and go, all right, make your way there. There's going to be some battles. There's going to be some crazy things going on. He's like, no, just follow me. I'm the flaming pillar. You can't miss it. And then I'm a pillar, I'm a pillar of smoke in the day. God is so compassionate and so graceful that he comes down and he lets them follow him. But I don't know if we would ask this question, but we should ask this question. Why, why don't we celebrate these festivals? They're meant to go on forever. Why don't we celebrate these festivals? I'm pretty sure when I was born as a firstborn son, my mom did not bring some turtle doves to the pastor. I've yet to have anybody here come do that. I take ham, actually. Ham. <laughs> Pastor, here's your ham. How about it? I would be rich in ham. We have a lot of firstborn. We have a lot of babies being popped out around here. I would be rich in ham. Now, this could be a new, a new liturgy. What has changed? Now, many of us, if you've been around here for a while, if you're familiar with your Bible, you know what has changed. That God is far more compassionate and far more merciful than we have ever imagined. That God kind of flips this. Jesus comes as the Son of God, the firstborn over all creation, and he's presented to the, at the temple, and he's set apart, he's consecrated to God. They pay the firstborn price for him, and then Jesus obeys all the law's commands. Everything that, all the Ten Commandments, all the clean law, he obeys all the law. He fulfills it all perfectly. He lives the life that God wants every human to live, the perfect life in obedience to him. Jesus lives it. I mean, the old King James says, dot and tittle. Every piece of the law, Jesus fulfills, and then does the unthinkable. Instead of setting up a throne and saying, I am the king of the universe who obeyed the law. I am the son of God. I demand that you worship me. He does the unthinkable, and he goes to a cross. And we see God here as a compassionate father offering up his firstborn son in the place of us, all of God's people. God is consecrating his firstborn son who was clean and yet gets treated like he's unclean. He's crucified and beaten and killed. God offered up his firstborn son, Jesus, to redeem us, all of us, us unclean people once and for all. When Jesus went to the cross, he brought all of the sin of God's people with him and he crucified it there. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, for you were bought with the price. You were bought with a price. The price was Jesus shed blood. And Paul, out of that, says there's an implication. Right away, he says, you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. What's he saying? You are not your own. 
You've been paid for. You've been purchased. The son of the living God shed his blood to bring you back to God and now glorify God in your body. I want us to think about that this morning as I close. How did the Israelites redeem their son? There was a price that had to be paid. But listen, there was no negotiation. You couldn't go to the priest and say, here's my five shekels or here's my lamb. And the priest went, well, actually, inflation, um, I need a little bit more. Or you come back next week and he goes, hey, thanks for that five shekels, but um, I need another one. I need some, something, something more out of you. When the price of redemption was paid, they were redeemed. There was nothing else for them to do to be redeemed. Now, I want you to think about this. This is the gospel. When Jesus Christ paid the price of his people's redemption, there is no other payment necessary. We are redeemed. I want you to, I'm going to read this from Charles Spurgeon. This is the gospel which we have to preach to you every time we stand before you. Namely, that Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God, was offered to God as a substitute for ungodly, unclean, unacceptable man, that we might not die, Christ died. That we might not be cursed, Jesus was cursed and fastened to the tree. That we might be received, he was rejected. That we might be approved, he was despised. And that we might live forever, he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. This is the greatest truth, the gospel. Jesus is our redemption price. He has paid the price once and for all for our redemption with his blood and there is nothing left for us to do to make ourselves right with God, to be redeemed. This is the scandal of the gospel. We must believe it. We must trust it. The question is not, what have you done this week? The question is not, how did you treat your neighbors this week? The question is not, how did you get along with your siblings at Thanksgiving this week? The question is not, how early did you wake up for Black Friday this week? The question is not, how good have you been? What have you done? What have you not done? The question is, has Jesus paid the price for your sins? That's the question. It's not how you feel. It's not what you've done. It's what Christ has done. And you are either in Christ or you're out of Christ. You've either been redeemed by his blood or you've not been redeemed by his blood. That's the truth of the gospel and it's free. And if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I offer it to you this morning. The blood of Christ, the perfect, sinless son of God has been shed for your sins in your place to make you right with God, to eternally secure your future in heaven and to give you new life to fight sin and to resist sin and to live for him today. 
been done for you. You were bought with a price. It's done. You turn from your sins and you turn to Jesus Christ. You have been redeemed. And for the Christian, this is just as true for you as it is for those who are outside of Christ. Your relationship with God is not dependent upon your quiet time, is not dependent upon how good you did this week, dependent upon the blood of Christ that was shed in your place, in your stead. And now, now, every time I declare the gospel like that, we have this religious gag reflex in us that says, but, 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 I can't just sin and do what I want. The religious gag reflex. And it's usually by those of us who live what we consider more moral lives. We have our stuff together. And so when the gospel goes out, we gag, we push back from it. That is the gospel doesn't matter what you did. Doesn't matter how you're living. Doesn't matter what's going on. Did Christ die? Is your faith in Christ? Then you're secure. You're saved. I don't care anything else. There's no other thing to talk about. That's it. The price of redemption has been paid. You're either redeemed or you're not. Period. Then, I'm not even going to use the word but. Then, you've been bought with a price. Now glorify God with your body. The gospel is not any excuse. It's not an excuse to sin. It's not an excuse to live how you want. It's not an excuse to, you know, continue on in your sin. It's not. You don't, if, if you are, if you're making the gospel an excuse, I can sin. It doesn't really matter. I can just ask for forgiveness tomorrow. It doesn't really matter. I'm going to live in sin. I'm going to do whatever it is doesn't matter, God will forgive me, then you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand the price has been paid for you. No one can look in the face of a crucified Savior who just took their place. They were, they were about to be nailed to the cross, but we got yanked down and they put Christ up there instead and they crucified him and we're staggering back and looking at the price of our redemption. We deserve that. Christ paid it. Now I can live however I want. Can't be done. There is nothing left for us to do. There was nothing we could do to cause God to love us anymore or cause God to love us any less. His love has been bought by the precious blood of Jesus. His favor has been secured forever in the life of His Son. Your adoption into his family has been signed, sealed, and delivered permanently by the blood of Jesus. And listen, there's nothing more freeing and more empowering than the gospel. I can't earn his love. I can't lose his love. What? I'm loved. I'm forgiven because of Christ's vicarious sacrifice on my behalf. It's freeing. I don't feel this pressure to perform. So freeing.
But there's also nothing more empowering. Empowering to fight sin. Empowering to close the web browser. Empowering to risk the advance, to to close down the advances from the opposite sex when you're married. There's nothing more empowering than the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't need the approval of others. I don't need that promotion. I have everything I need in Christ. I'm forgiven. I'm loved. I've been adopted into the eternal family of God forever by the work of Jesus. There is nothing more freeing and more empowering knowing that we can't lose that. Jesus has lived. Jesus has died. Jesus was resurrected. Jesus is exalted. Our position is secure in Christ. Now, that's the gospel. Do you see how I end? I'm going to tag something here. The concept, even though we no longer do the consecration of the firstborn, we no longer do the Passover, we no longer do the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Why? All of those have been culminated and fulfilled in Christ. But we still are liturgical animals. We still are shaped by the practices that we have. And so that we have a few of them around here. We have a few. Everybody's got a lot of them, right? We have family ones. But I want to talk about, real quick, the importance of this gathering. I've already mentioned it. The way that we have it laid out from the beginning until the end. And if you don't get here on time, you do miss important aspects of this liturgy that's meant to shape us into certain type of people. I can't imagine not, make, not being here for the confession specifically. I, I like wait for the confession because my confessions at home are so lame. God, I, forgive me for just everything that I've done. <laughs> I like the confession that ha- actually shape. oh yeah, I do that. Oh yeah, I, did. Ooh, I didn't even know that was a sin. Yeah, I did that one too. That helps. And then hearing God's word and hearing him absolve us of our sin. But there's other things, and I want to speak specifically because of this time of year. Um, something that's new, we never practice it. At, well, we kind of did a little bit as a child, but not much. Uh, for us, the, the word Advent was even new. We didn't even know what Advent means. And Advent means arrival. It means the arrival of, of Jesus Christ into the world, that God was incarnated in man, the second member of the Trinity, Jesus came and became man, put on flesh. And so we celebrate that season every year. Every year, we have a liturgical calendar that's meant to focus us at the end of the year and prepare us for a new year that Jesus Christ came and he's coming again. And so as a family, we think it's important, fathers specifically lead this out, mothers come alongside, help us out, to celebrate Advent as a family. It's a liturgical celebration every year to prepare us and to focus us to remember Jesus. Now listen, I don't care about presents. I mean, I do care about presents. I love presents. That's not what I mean. I don't care how much you spend on presents. I really don't. Just connect it back to God giving his ultimate gift. If we do this just because we love presents, liturgy's been hijacked. We do this because at this time of year, we celebrate God giving his ultimate gift. And he makes us generous people. And so we pour our gifts out on our kids and our friends and our family. This is what Christians do. We're generous. We love this season. Connect it back. 
So some of the things that we do, um, we have, you can see there's an Advent wreath up here. We've got five candles. These candles are hope, love, uh, hope, joy, peace, and love. And the white candle is the Christ candle. We light that candle um, on Christmas Eve. We light that candle on Christmas Eve. And then interestingly enough, Black Friday, that candle gets blown out. If you've ever been to our good Black Friday. Hey, I could make a really cheesy joke there, that, right? Uh, good Friday, good Friday, uh, that candle gets blown out, and then on Easter, that candle gets relit and comes back in, celebrating Christ's death and Christ's resurrection, and we get a new candle every year on Easter, okay, Resurre- representing our new bodies. Now, you can do this at home. We do this. We've even got, um, I think I bought five, I think I bought five Advent wreaths that are at back in the back. They're the cheapest you can find. I bought them. And these Advent wreaths have these candles. And each week, you light a new candle. So this today, you light the candle of hope. And they've got devotions that go with them. We've got a book here. We've got some. We, we, this family devotional. This one's called Prepare Him Room. It goes right along with our kids' ministry. So it's in, in, so two, three times a week, you crack this baby open while you're getting hit with spaghetti, and you try to do, a, you know, a little devotion, right? You, you, you bring attention to your kids to the greatest act of redemption that's ever happened. You connect them back to the gospel. You connect them back to Jesus Christ coming into a dark world and the light of Christ entering into it. And so we've got these for us. We've got our Christmas album, our Advent album that you can put on, have theologically rich Christmas music to play in your car. Um, and then obviously we have a Christmas Eve gathering around here, and we're not going to have Christmas service. So we are canceling Christmas Sunday morning. We're having Christmas Eve service here, and we're not having a Christmas gathering this year. Um, and so we have Christmas Eve candlelit. Our kids get up here, they sing a song. These are some liturgies. And I want you guys to think about it. One, another liturgy that we have, obviously, is the Lord's Supper we're about to take place. We're about to do right now. But when your kids ask these questions, I love that in the text today. When your son asks you, why are we doing this? Do you have an answer? You know what that means? Parents, you're called to be the theologians of your home. Why do we do this? I don't know. Ask Justin. That doesn't work. Why are we doing that? Why are we putting lights around this Christmas tree? I'm not going to give you the answer. Go figure it out. Why are, what is your liturgy? What are your family practices? Why are you doing it? Connect it back to God. Connect it back to the gospel. So we've got those back there. If you want those to help start maybe shaping as, you know, in your family, these new liturgies to help connect your kids to the Christmas Back to the Christmas story. We want to help you do that. And now I want to pray as we are going to practice another liturgy that the Lord did leave us, the Last Supper, that's meant to connect us right back to the Passover, right? On the night that he was betrayed, the Passover, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. This is what it cost me to save you. This is what it costs me to buy you. This is the price of redemption, my body, 
and my blood. It took nothing less than the body of God by you. That's how, and there's, that's how, that's how high our debt was. That's how we're unclean. It took the ultimate clean lamb, the son of God dying to make us right with God. And God went that far because of his great love for us. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your son. I thank you for this liturgy that we get to be a part of. In one sense, they're so normal. In our society, we look for the spectacular. We looked for, for the great moment of feeling. When we do that, we can miss you. But you meet us in meals. You meet us in your word. You meet us at this table. And we thank you for the work that you've done to secure our salvation. That you, you're, yeah, you're no longer coming with us in flame and in smoke. No, you're with us in such greater intimacy. You come in us through your Holy Spirit. Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, you came and walked this earth. And then as you were resurrected and ascended to the right hand, you sent the Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity, to fill us in us, not just leading us. Thank you. I pray this moment we break the body, we partake of the blood, Father, that you would be near us, you would be in us. And my friends who have not believed in you, they have not been baptized in obedience to you, that they would not take the elements, but they would take you in faith this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.